My purpose in writing is to encourage you and assure you that what you are experiencing is truly part of God's grace for you. Stand firm in that grace. Greet each other with a kiss of love. Peace be with all of you who are in Christ. as we continue to work through this letter from the Apostle Peter. Go ahead and grab your Bible and open it or open your Bible app and find 1 Peter. It's towards the end of your Bible. If you get to 2 Peter, you've gone too far. And uh, we're gonna be studying the first half of chapter four today. But before we dive into that, I'm wondering if any of you can relate to me in something. Uh, Have you ever experienced a time where you get treated differently? Like in a negative sense, once someone discovers that you are a Christian. This happens to me all the time when I'm flying. Uh, where a stranger sits down next to me, we're getting ready to take off, you know, the, the flight attendants are doing their thing, and we start engaging in small talk. And pretty early on in the conversation, they asked me the question, so what do you do for a living? Now, Steve Engel actually told me this week that whenever he gets asked that question, he responds by saying, okay, I'll tell you, but first, you have to promise that you won't judge me. <laughs> like, that's a great line. I'm going to start using that, right? People are like, what does he do? Uh, I told Steve, though, I'm going to start using that. But once they say, okay, I, I promise I won't judge you, I'm going to respond as seriously as possible and say, I'm an assassin. Right? Wouldn't that spark a good conversation? <laughs> I think that would be fun. No? Not on a plane? Okay, maybe not. Uh, <laughs> but you see, in that moment, when I'm faced with that question, I have to decide, am I going to tell the truth <laughs> or am I going to make something up? And don't worry, I tell the truth. And I reply, I'm a pastor. To which I oftentimes get the response, oh, <laughs> Well, good for you. (laughs) End of conversation, right? Then we sit for three and a half hours in awkward silence. It's wonderful. Um, But maybe you, uh, you aren't a pastor, so you can't relate to that specifically, but I'm sure you have similar experiences. Like when uh, your neighbor asks you what you're doing this weekend, and then they look at you like you're an alien from Mars when you mention that your plans involve going to church. Maybe for you, it's when you walk into the break room at work, and the group of people who were discussing office gossip, they look at you like, ugh, buzzkill just showed up. Because they know that like, you don't participate in that kind of conversation. Now everyone's standing there awkward and silent, and it's weird. Maybe it's when your buddy is making comment after comment after comment that's just mocking your intelligence in front of your whole group of friends because he's so shocked that you actually believe in this Jesus stuff. See, for a lot of us, it's not that uncommon to have experiences like these because we're Christians living in a non-Christian society. And last weekend, we studied part of 1 Peter chapter 3 where Peter says this, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. 
Pastor Steve Matson did an excellent job coaching us in how to do just that, how to, how to uh, prepare to explain our hope in Jesus Christ. But what happens when I do that and people don't agree with the message that I give? That they don't share the same faith that I have and they honestly don't really like the fact that I'm a Christian. And so as a result, all I get in return is flack. Well, our text today is going to talk about this very thing. You see, the, the Christians that the Apostle Peter wrote this book to over 2,000 years ago, they can actually totally relate to us. And the great thing is that Peter, he doesn't just encourage this group of Christians in the midst of the ridicule and the mistreatment they're going through, but he actually coaches them on how they can react, what their response can be when they are receiving this pushback for their faith. So hopefully you found 1 Peter chapter 4 by now. We're going to start by reading verses 1 through 6. Peter writes, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you've spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. And they're surprised that you don't join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. Okay, so we know from what we've already studied in previous weekends of this series that Peter wrote this letter to churches located all throughout what is now uh, modern-day Turkey. And he wrote it uh, as a means to encourage them uh, because they were facing intense persecution and suffering. And we know from certain words and phrases that Peter uses at, at several instances throughout the book that he's writing this letter to groups of Gentiles. These aren't groups of Jews who have now decided to follow Jesus. These aren't Jewish Christians who kind of have already uh, lived a life that's well familiar with the suffering that comes from, from a life that's in stark contrast with the culture around you, uh, a, a life that oftentimes results in you being socially ostracized, even hated. No, that wouldn't have been how these uh, groups of Christians were raised. These are individuals who would have grown up fully engaged in and a part of Roman society. These are not people who grew up as good, like, good church kids. And Peter, he even talks about it. He says in verse three, hey, remember your lives before you met Jesus? Like you were typical Romans who did all kinds of crazy, bad, awful stuff with your friends. Peter says that was, that was your old life. You guys partied, you got drunk, you fully engaged in temple worship, which in many cases involved things like group sexual encounters, bestiality, all kinds of detestable things. And Peter, he's not bringing this up to shame them of their past. He's reminding them of how hopeless, how void of meaning their lives used to be. He says, but, but that was your old life. Before Jesus transformed you, the, before the gospel completely turned you upside down, and you're different now. Those old things, they didn't give you life. They couldn't provide you significance. In fact, they tried to destroy you. But then Jesus came along, and he filled you up to overflowing with grace and peace and meaning. 
Jesus gave you the life you were looking for. He, he gave you new life. But here's the problem. The problem is, although this incredible life change had happened, these new Christians, they are now being treated not like Roman citizens, not like normal members of their society, but like aliens and exiles within their own society. Like, they haven't changed their geographical location. This is where they've grown up, where they've spent their lives, but now they're being treated like strangers, like foreigners, like outsiders by the very same people that they used to hang out with. Think about how that would feel. Peter's saying, hey, your friends that you used to do all that stuff with, like, they, they don't get it. They're totally surprised that you stopped going to the temple with them to worship Roman gods. They, they, they keep inviting you time and time and time again, and yet you just keep declining. Then, they hear you mention this Jesus thing, and now the relationship begins to change. You've actually started to become the target of their abuse. Look back at verse four. Peter says this. He says, they are surprised. They're surprised that you don't join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. Okay, notice that phrase, they heap abuse on you. What does that mean exactly? Well, the, uh, the word abuse in the original Greek, it, uh, it kind of helps us answer this. The, the word is, is the Greek word blasphemeo. Does that look familiar to anyone? Yeah, it's where we get our English word blaspheme or blasphemy. Think about that. They're, they're friends, their coworkers, their neighbors, sometimes even their very own family, the people that they are closest to in life are now blaspheming them. They're speaking irreverently towards them. They're, they're talking trash. They're taking their reputation and they're dragging it through the mud. They're, they're throwing them under the bus. Not because the Christians were being pushy or annoying or arrogant. No, the Christ followers, they were experiencing this abuse. They were being ostracized because they no longer participated in destructive and sinful activities. You know, I, I, I'm actually not going to be able to make it to temple today. Sorry about that. I got a few things I got to take care of. You know, I don't really want to go out on Saturday. I, I don't, I don't kind of party like that anymore. And that's when things start to go south. Is this something you've ever experienced? Yes. Can you relate to that? Has, have people ever looked down on you because of your faith? Have you ever been the target of someone else talking smack to you simply because you're not going along with the crowd? See, as East Bay Area Christians living in 2017, like, we can't really relate to the type of suffering that some of these early Christians went through when they lost their homes or they lost their businesses. Some even lost their very lives because of their faith. I mean, what Peter's talking about here, well, this is one band of, brand of suffering that so many of us can relate to. We, we experience similar types of alienation when we refrain from modern versions of what's happened here. You know, when I was in high school, I was the only Christian on my soccer team. I mean, this was a group of girls that I spent six, sometimes seven days a week with. For, for, for four years straight, year round. 
And yet birthday parties would come up and I wouldn't get an invite. We'd be at practice and girls would be talking about uh, their plans for the weekend and the conversation would kind of grow silent when I walked up. We'd, we'd travel for out-of-town tournaments and the whole team would meet in someone's hotel room to watch a movie together, but the decision would already be made for me that Becky wouldn't really watch a movie like this. It sucks. It, it sucks when, when we experience things like character belittlement, intellectual harassment, social exclusion from, from people who are close to us friends and family, professional ostracism. When we're mocked for the morals we have. Wait, you don't do what? What are you, a prude? And these things, they happen simply because we are quietly and respectfully disengaging from certain things that are sinful, that we know lead to death, that we know uh, will only bring hurt and pain and destruction. Because we've, we've seen the other side. We've found life. Why would we continue to do those things that lead to death when we know the answer? You guys, you see, that's a part of what it means to be a Christ follower. When, when we live lives differently than, than the secular culture around us. See, when we endure situations like this, even though they are painful and alienating and at times completely unfair, we can be encouraged because it actually means that we're on the right track. It's why Jesus tells his disciples in John 15, he says, hey, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own, but you don't belong to the world. Who do you belong to? You belong to Jesus. And, and that is why the world hates you. Not that is why the world might hate you, but if you're pretty nice, then they probably won't. No, Jesus is saying the world will hate you. Be prepared for that. See, the very fact that we're facing these situations is evidence that we're following Jesus, that we're his. Not just in word, but also in action, in lifestyle. In fact... I would actually say, if we aren't experiencing these types of things, if we aren't experiencing these types of situations, whether it's at home or in our neighborhood or at work or wherever it may be, I think we should spend some time this week, get alone, just you and God, and say, hey, God, have I actually given you control of my whole life? Or are there still areas of of, of our past that we aren't yet willing to give up to change? We still want to blend in in that way. See, Peter says, hey, don't be surprised when people heap abuse on you because of your faith in Jesus. Actually expect it. And then when those times come, when those things are happening, here's how you shouldn't respond. Right? We talk a lot about next steps here at Cornerstone. Peter would say, here is your non-next step. He says, don't retaliate. Don't retaliate. He says, hey, don't get sucked into that revenge game. Even even when trash talking is involved. I mean, I don't know about you, but when someone's like trash talking me, it is so hard. It it takes everything in me to just not fight back. Because I can be really clever and mean and cutting with my words. And, And Peter's saying, hey, pull back on that inclination. Look at verse five. He says, but they will have 
to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. But they will have to give account. Peter's saying, let God take care of this. He's the one true judge. He he will bring justice and judgment. God will call everyone into account for their actions. And so when I'm being thrown under the bus because of my non-participation in sin, my best next step is to not dish it back. My, My best next step is to not worry about it, but instead to trust that God will handle things in his perfect timing. Here's the thing, though. I would say almost 100% of the time, you don't want to say 100% of the time because then if it happens once, you'd be wrong, but almost 100% of the time in this process, it happens a lot slower than what we would do if we were God. You ever experienced one of those moments where you're like, seriously, I think I could do God's job better than him? And so we're like, okay, fine, God. I'm not going to retaliate. I'm not gonna take the situation into my own hands. I'm gonna trust you. I'm gonna take the high road. But look, Lord, like, you gotta gotta bring down the hammer and now would be a really good time to do that because because the way my boss handled that available promotion, like, that was ridiculously unfair and I'm pretty sure kind of illegal. I was definitely the one who deserved it. God, now would be a really great time for you to kind of jump in here because I'm at the end of my rope when it comes to my neighbor and how she's making my life completely difficult for no reason at all. God, if I have to spend one more holiday listening to my dad rant and belittle me in front of the whole family, I'm gonna lose it. And so God, take your time. I'm trusting you, but before Thanksgiving would be really good. But you see, most of the time, God is very slow. He takes his time. Why? It's actually right here. Peter tells us that God wants the gospel to intersect that person's life too. And on, depending on where they're at, it may take a lot of time. See, the truth is, the gospel takes time. Ah, we don't want to hear that, but it's true. And what Jesus does is he gives people a lot of chances, a lot of opportunities so that grace can overtake them. And I don't know about you, but I'm actually grateful he does because I needed a lot of chances, a lot of opportunities. And now I get it. Some of us are probably thinking, all right, wait a minute. You're saying that the abusive stuff that's coming from others and tearing me down, excluding me, causing me to miss opportunities at work, that's socially degrading me, all of that stuff, God allows it to continue at my expense so that that person has a chance to hear about and accept Jesus? You're saying that I'm supposed to absorb punches so that the one who's throwing those punches can get right with God? Well, Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. Actually, Peter's saying it, so blame him. See, that, my friends, is, is actually how we imitate Jesus. Because absorbing blows for us is what Jesus did. Two weeks ago, I had the incredible opportunity to go to Israel for my first time with a group from Cornerstone. And if you've never done that trip, you have to. It's unbelievable. And one of the places we went to was, we were in Jerusalem, and we went to this place called Antonia Fortress. 
And I actually got to stand and walk on the same flooring, the the original stones that were there over 2,000 years ago when Jesus was brought to that place and he was brutally beaten and whipped by the Romans before going to the cross. Like, I literally stood where Jesus absorbed blows for me, for you. See, Peter, he's teaching us another facet of the gospel and how we can imitate Jesus, which, guys, is really the ultimate goal. I mean, why did you sign up to be a Christ follower if you didn't actually want to follow after him? That's our goal. And, you know, there may even be some of you here today who aren't Christians, Maybe you're actually here at church today because you've met someone who's taken these kinds of punches and it was their response of forgiveness or or generosity or their grace that was actually appealing to you. And now you're trying to figure out what this is all about. If that's you, we're really glad you're here. Hopefully this is a place where you feel welcome, where you feel like you can ask questions and, and maybe find some answers. See, Peter, he he coaches us on how we shouldn't respond when we face these challenging situations. He says, don't retaliate. And then he gives us some really practical next steps uh, that that we can take in order to move forward in in becoming more like Jesus as we're wrestling through this kind of stuff. Take a look. We're going to read verses 7 through 11. Here's what Peter says. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gifts you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Okay, so did you catch those four next steps that Peter gives us? He says this. He says, pray alertly, love deeply, show hospitality, and serve others with your gifts. You see, uh, in a general sense, what Peter is saying in this section is that when Christians are receiving pressure, when they're receiving heat for their faith in Jesus, the solution, the antidote, is, is to do this. It's to lean into Christian community. To lean into Christian community. The antidote of sorts is to surround ourselves with fellow believers so that we can pray for each other. So so that we can love each other, be hospitable to, and serve one another. That's what a church does. That's how we treat each other. Not to say that we like circle the wagons and we just cut off all relationship from everyone who doesn't share our faith. No, not at all. That's not what Jesus did. That's not what he calls us to do. But it does mean that we help pick each other up after we get knocked down. It does mean that we give encouragement and strength. We pray for and we serve one another so that each of us has has the sufficient spiritual energy to face that opposition again and then again and then again so, so that we can continue to be the light of Christ in the dark places around us. That's our mission. 
And, and Peter, he, he's stressing the importance of leaning into Christian community and not trying to face these types of challenging situations on our own. Because let's be honest, a lot of us, when we're going through difficult things, we just like to handle it on our own. And we keep it all in. And Peter's saying, hey, you can't do that. You gotta lean into Christian community. Let's look a little more in depth as to what this type of community looks like. Peter, the first one he says is this. He says, pray alertly. Okay, what does it mean to pray alertly? A few years back, uh, our house got broken into. Thankfully, um, all they stole was a little safe that unfortunately for them didn't have really anything valuable in it. Uh, unfortunately for us, it had all of our important documents in it, so that's fun. And that experience, it, it kind of put us on edge a bit. We, we got identity theft protection, we were like checking our bank accounts and our credit cards for like multiple times a day for fraud. Now, not only that, but we were much more alert. I walked around the complex and I would notice everything. I mean, if I saw anyone that I didn't recognize, I immediately started utilizing all of my wonderful criminal minds expertise and I would begin to analyze them in my head. I would, I would like be trying to identify any clues as to whether or not they were the person who broke into my home. I'm a little crazy, but that's okay. The point is, when you're on the alert, you notice the little things that would otherwise go unnoticed. When you're on the alert, you slow down, you, you pay attention, you begin to see subtle cues that, that tell you that there's more going on here than what meets the eye. And that's what it means to pray alertly. You're living life in a focused and in an attentive manner so that you're more aware of what to pray for and when to pray for it and how to pray for it. Let's look at the second one. Peter says this, he, he, tells, he tells us to love deeply. Now, Peter isn't talking about like a butterflies in your stomach, Twitter-pated feeling kind of love. No, this implies a painstaking love, a love that requires diligence and intentionality. Have you ever experienced love like that? It actually relates back to week three of this series when uh, Pastor Billy talked about the word ectonos, ectonos. And I'm not gonna go back into depth, so if you missed that week, go back and watch it that, that, on, online sometime this week. He did a great job. But what we learned from Pastor Billy is that ectonos, it's a stretching love. It's a strenuous love. It will be difficult and challenging at times. Imagine that, Christians being difficult and challenging at times to love. I've never met anyone like that. I'm not talking about you guys, of course. It's, it's, the, it's the other, other service, not you guys. <laughs> See, Peter, he's encouraging them to love each other with this, this earnest type of love. And then here's the third one. He says, do this. Show hospitality. But he says, don't just show it. Show it without grumbling. Show it without complaining. Man, that makes it a little bit more harder. But to really get what Peter's saying here, we have to make sure we have the right understanding of hospitality. See, the Greek word for hospitality means a lover of strangers. It implies that you are generous and gracious in your care for others, especially those that you don't know. Hospitality does not mean that you throw really great parties. Hospitality does not mean that you have a big, nicely decorated home. 
Hospitality is not the same thing as entertaining. Entertaining is when we're more concerned with the house being in order or the yard being fixed up or the food that needs to be prepared than we are concerned about the people who are coming through the door. See, if it all depends on things being perfect before you open the door, then you're entertaining. (coughs) Hospitality, on the other hand, it opens the door even when the kids' toys are all over the place. Hospitality opens the door even when your hair is a hot mess because hospitality isn't about impressing. True hospitality is about slowing down, being present, inviting strangers into your life and caring for others in such a way that communicates to them, you matter to me. That's hospitality. Man, think of how great our holidays could be if, if Cornerstone really embraced being hospitable in our communities the next few months. Here's the fourth point Peter makes. He says, serve others with your gifts. Notice that he doesn't say, serve others if you have a gift. No, the gifts are implied. The truth is, each and every single one of us has been given gifts by God to use, not for our own personal gain, but in the service of others. And the result of using our gifts, it doesn't just help others. It's not just for the benefit of those we're serving, but it actually brings joy and significance and fulfillment to our own life as well. I've experienced it firsthand. Here's what we're going to do. On the count of three, I want every single person, and if you're watching online, I want every single person to yell out what their gift is. Okay? One, two... I'm just kidding, we're not gonna do that. (laughs) Some of you guys got so nervous, and then some of you were like totally pumped. You're like, I know what it is, I'm gonna say it loud and proud. (laughs) Okay, let's say we did that though. Let's say we did that. I imagine that there would be a significant percentage of us who would answer, I don't know. And you know what? That's okay. It's okay to not know. It's not okay to let not knowing keep you from serving. It's not okay if we convince ourselves that, you know, it's fine, I'm just gonna stay on the sidelines until I can figure all this out. See, at some point, we just have to be willing to take a leap of faith and start serving somewhere, anywhere. And as we do that, we'll actually begin to gain more clarity as to what our gifts are. But you see, if we don't start somewhere, then we're gonna spend the rest of our lives always not knowing. We gotta just jump in. And if this is you, I'm gonna ask you to do something. See, we actually have a team of volunteers called Connectors on all of our Cornerstone campuses. And their gift, one of the ways that they serve is by helping people discover their own gifts. And so if you would say, I don't know what my gifts are, Or maybe you know what your gifts are, but you don't even know where to begin to start serving. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to stop by the Next Steps area on your campus before you leave today. Or if you're joining us online, you're gonna shoot an email to this address, connect at cornerstoneweb.org. And you're just gonna say, hey, I wanna chat with a connector. Now don't worry, we know you've got a lot of great things to do after church, so we're not gonna have that conversation right then and there. But we will have a connector reach out to you this week. 
And, and they'll help you begin to figure this out. Guys, guys, the reality is we're in this together. We're here to help you. And, and you are too valuable and too needed to not know your gifts and then use your gifts. And I'm going to close with this. Let's put up those four points that Peter gave us, these four next steps. Why do you guys think these are the four things that Peter chooses to call out when he talks about Christian community? Like, why these four? Because if you think about it, there's a ton of other things he could have put up here. I mean, read any book in the New Testament and Paul, Peter, John, they'll all give you like list of things that Christians should be known for, a list of things that a church, a Christian community should do. But here, in this moment, in this context, Peter chooses these four. I think it's because he knows from personal experience how important these things are, especially for someone who's feeling a bit battered and bruised by the world around them, especially for someone who has experienced ridicule and rejection and they're tired and hurting and exhausted and they're just trying to figure out how to navigate it all. Like, think about it. There's something really healing about each of these things. There's, there's, there's something healing when we know that there are others around us who are on the alert and who are praying for us. It's healing when we understand the acceptance that comes with being loved deeply and fully by others. It's healing to experience the kind of care that comes from being shown true hospitality, from knowing that you matter to someone. It's healing to be a part of the unity that's built when we each are using our gifts to serve one another. See, when we experience this type of like real, authentic Christian community, the wounds that have been inflicted on us, the, the, the blows that we've had to absorb, they, they begin to mend. And this is what the church is supposed to be. This is why Cornerstone exists. We're not simply a place, but we're a group of people through which you can experience real Christian community, where you can come and you can be cared for in a way that's healing and encouraging, in a way that's challenging and growing so that you feel equipped, you feel energized to go back out into the world around you and continue to shine your light, to continue to live differently than everyone else around you, even when it's hard, even when you receive flack because of it, because the, the thing that is at stake is eternity. You do that, you push through, you persevere so that through you, others will come to know the great love of Jesus Christ. So that through you, others will have their lives completely transformed by the gospel. And that was Peter's prayer for these Christians over 2,000 years ago. And man, that's my prayer for each and every single one of us. Let's pray together. Lord, you are such a good God. You are such a loving and caring God. Man, we were so lost and messed up without you. But then you came and you extended your grace to us and you completely transformed our lives. And God, I pray for anyone who 
is just trying their best to follow after you, to imitate you, and God, they're receiving opposition. They're receiving harm, they're receiving abuse, they're receiving unfair treatment because of it. God, I pray that you would give them the courage and the strength to continue following after you wholeheartedly. God, I pray that you would draw them into deep, authentic Christian community where they can begin to find healing from those wounds. And God, I pray that you would strengthen and equip each and every single one of us to continue to go back out there, to face that opposition, to live fully for you so that through us, your Holy Spirit might work in someone's life. So that through us, someone else might come to know you and have their lives completely changed as well. God, that's our hope, that's our prayer. But if we're gonna do it, we need your Holy Spirit's strength and power, and God, we need each other. Teach us how to lean into Christian community. We love you, Lord, and we pray these things in your son's awesome and mighty and matchless name. Amen.